Woe be unto him who opens one of the seven gateways to hell, because through that gateway evil will invade the world.
All right. I'm here with Troy Haworth, and we're here to talk a little bit about 1981, but mostly we're here to talk about Venom, the Pierce Hager movie that was originally supposed to be directed by Toby Hooper, of all people, and uh, not the first Toby Hooper movie that he lost. So uh, how are you doing, Troy? I'm good. Thank you for having me along. Oh, thanks for doing it. So I guess we'll hop right into the plot here. This is kind of a bizarre one. Uh, more more of a thriller than a horror film, I'd say. Yeah, it's it's based on a book uh, of the same name. came out in 1977 by a South African writer, Al Schofield, um, which, if memory serves, it's been a long time since I've read it, but my recollection is it follows it fairly closely. Uh, the characters and the relationships are basically the same. I can't remember if the... Um, if the grandfather in the book is the grandfather or the grandfather in the film is the grandfather in the book or not, if that relationship was changed. But uh, most of the other people are the same. The police inspector, the uh, the, the various terrorists who are involved, um, you know, and uh, it was a prestige film that uh, went over very badly. It was uh, not well received at all. It had a complicated production, as I'm sure we'll talk about. And it was... Um, it kind of laid an egg at the box office, and critics didn't like it either. Yeah, it, I feel like they uh, the director mentioned this in the commentary. He said that it felt dated even for the time, and it really does. Like, there's not very many Animal Attacks movies from this time. I, I mean, there's a couple the previous year, but there's about four or five here, and none of them are in this kind of this kind of. This just doesn't feel like a thriller kind of style in this way. It's very different. It stands alone if you compare it to the other 1981 movies. It doesn't really fit any molds. Well, interestingly, it ended up being one of two kind of killer snake movies that Oliver Reed did in the early 80s. The other one was a Canadian tax shelter thing uh, where he has a kind of telepathic psychic link with a uh, the giant snake movie called Spasms. He's changing. God, he's blue. He's blue. He's bloating. He's bursting. experiment in telepathy um which uh i want to make it very clear i i i like venom very much i like it much more than most people seem to like it but if you don't like venom let me assure you watch uh spasms and you'll probably have a much better appreciation for it um the the animal attacks thing was kind of dying out it was very much a late 70s thing that sort of eco horror period uh, the obvious antecedents would be things like The Birds, going all the way back to the 60s, Alfred Hitchcock's great film. But then in the 70s, Jaws comes along, and that results in a big slew of similar films. Uh, either things like Orca, Killer Whale uh, with Richard Harris, or uh, a Jaws on land type of picture like Grizzly. Um, but Jaws is still popular into the 80s, of course. There's a string of sequels, worse and worse, coming along in the early 80s and so this was kind of riding that a little bit it's also a little bit uh reminiscent of the late 70s um fixation with disaster movies uh in the sense that you have an all-star cast uh gathered together and being picked off one by one yeah i i the one movie that comes to mind for me is because this is a big mixture of genres thriller kind of caper or kidnapping movie and horror and it, it, killer fish right away which is one of these yeah. deals where it just big cast mixes all these and I, I don't think killer fish was much appreciated when it came out and I, I enjoy that one as well I, I just am a big cast person so if you have a good cast and they do a decent job I'm going to enjoy your movie for the most part 
Well, the nice thing about Venom is, and one of the reviews, I remember Leonard Moulton wrote that uh, half the big name cast appeared to be drunk and the other half appeared like they wished they were. And I think the only reason he, that, well, it wasn't him that said it. I'll bet you it was Bill Warren who wrote it because Moulton, of course, he doesn't write all his reviews for his books. Uh, that would be impossible. So he has a staff of writers and Bill Warren tended to focus on the horror and sci-fi stuff. So I suspect that was probably Bill Warren's uh, comment, but I think the only reason they said that is because they know that Oliver Reed and Sterling Hayden and Nicola Williamson uh, all had drinking problems. Uh, so that's kind of low hanging fruit there in a sense and not very kind. I don't think it's accurate either. I, actually, I think uh, what I like most about this film is you've got a really good cast and everybody does a damn good job and everybody's got a good part to play. Even down to little supporting parts, there are a lot of really familiar character actors if you're a fan of british films and british television of the 60s 70s there's some wonderful people who pop in some in some cases just for a scene um edward hardwick who would go on to play dr watson opposite jeremy brett on tv in the uh, in the 80s and 90s shows up as a kind of bigwig uh, from the police it comes in one scene that's it um john forbes robertson who'd played dracula for hammer and legend of the seven golden vampires he plays the uh, the policeman who gets shotgunned by oliver reed uh, I might not recognize him because he's without his toupee in this one. And Michael Goff, who, of course, had been a, a kind of genre fixture going all the way back to the 1950s. Uh, he shows up playing a character who's actually named after the uh, uh, reptile expert that's uh, worked on the film, David Ball. Um, he's he's credited in the film with special thanks. So he plays a, an expert named David Ball. So it's a wonderful cast and everybody really delivers, I think, in it. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. Uh, now that you pointed out that I didn't recognize that being Dracula from Legend of Seven Golden yeah. Vampires. So, I mean, there's three, at least three hum Hammer alumni with Michael Goth and Oliver Reed, of course, got a start in Hammer. And uh, mm -hmm. I, I noticed right away it had that Hammer kind of vibe or even Universal, it predates the Universal where all the side characters introduce add like a bit of comedy. The, the lady in the pet shop, the cab driver, they're all like yeah. get their little moment to be funny and just add a little charming. It goes all the way back to Frankenstein with the the uh, the, the old the old couple wandering around and then they fall in the bride of Frankenstein. So it's like it's so very much like a Hammer film. Again, 81 is in just that sense. I mean, like it's also kind of a mixture, like you said, of the crime elements and and whatnot. Uh, like. I, I was reading it and the director, like I heard the commentary and the director said yeah. he never got a chance to read the book either. So, and he wanted to change the script. And I'm wondering if that script was, they said negotiated to the point you said it follows the book fairly closely. So they probably were, their hands were tied to follow the book. Well, not only that, but I think because he was coming into it after Toby Hooper had started the film uh, and it was bad enough that they had to junk everything that Hooper shot. Um, but it would have been an added expense because if you're going to rework the script, I mean, it's one thing if you're going to polish the dialogue a little bit, change a little bit here and there. But if you're talking about really overhauling it, it that's that's a big production expense because the sets have already been built. Schedules have already been laid out and so forth. So there's all these kinds of things that play into it. Um, Piers Haggard, as you mentioned, um, you know, was was drafted in very much late in the day. He turned it down uh, at first because he he wasn't given enough time and he said no. And then. Uh, there were some further delays, and then he had an opening in his schedule, and he said, all right, I'm, I might as well go ahead and do it. Um, <clears throat> nobody really knows for sure what happened with Toby Hooper. Um, there's a lot of mystery about Toby Hooper in general during this period of time. This extends also to Poltergeist, which remains hotly contested, uh, how much of that film he really directed and how much he didn't. Um, 
there's some pretty compelling evidence uh, in terms of commentary from people who worked on the film that he was there, but Spielberg was really calling the shots all the time and making big decisions. Um, and I think also if you watch the film, it's it's pretty obvious. Um, but in the case of a film like this or another film he'd done earlier called The Dark, which he started to direct and he was removed from that, John Bud Cardos took over. And uh, the, the the first feature he did after Texas Chainsaw Massacre, a movie called Eaten Alive, which I'm very fond of, um, Me too. he was fired uh, partway through the film. So all the kind of boring police procedural scenes with Stuart Whitman were directed by uh, the producer, Marty Rustam. Uh, and so Cooper really didn't have that kind of control over the film that he had on Texas Chainsaw, for example. So it's a lot of stories about, and I don't think it's telling tales out of school. He apparently developed a bad drug problem uh, after Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He was he was in a bad way for a period of time. Uh, William Friedkin had tried to get him set up at Universal. He was a huge fan of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. William Friedkin, who just passed away recently, the great director of The Exorcist, um, he, he had really been a big sort of... Uh, uh, fan of Hooper and was really advocating for him uh, during that period. There was also some talk of uh, Hooper and John Carpenter doing a film uh, together, a, a film that Carpenter had written, but that didn't go anywhere. Uh, and of course, you know, there's that crossover too, because Carpenter had been offered the possibility of doing uh, Salem's Lot, which Hooper ended up doing. So he's all over the place during this time in, in many senses of the term. And it's hard to say, was it the drugs? Was it anything else? There's another story that I've never been able to substantiate that at some point, uh, Klaus Kinski kind of bragged that he and the other actors ganged up on Hooper to get him removed from the film. Um, it's possible. I don't know if it's true or not. I do know that apparently Hooper was shooting the film in a very different way from what Haggard decided to do. Haggard decided to take a fairly straight, uh, realistic approach. It's, it's, um, it's not a particular, it's not a stylized film, whereas what Hooper was doing was a bit more expressionistic. Uh, he was going more for kind of, you know, shadowy lighting effects and weird kind of things. And apparently Kinski was made up in that version. His his costume was um, vaguely Nazi-like, uh, which obviously didn't make him very happy. So when, when Hooper left and Haggard looked at the material and said, I can't use this, I'm not going to shoot the movie this way, and they had to start over... Uh, I think the reason he endeared himself to, to Kinski was the fact he said, go pick out some nice clothes for yourself. And so he looks very stylish and very slick in the film as opposed to looking like a Nazi. Yeah. And he said he uh, grabbed a couple extra ties, of course, too. Right. <laughs> of course. Take advantage of that. Um, of course. The, the timeline for Hooper is so strange. If you look at you got 74, of course, Texas Chainsaw. And then you have 76, you have Eaten Alive. And then you go 79. I'm not sure if he got fired on the dark before or, or yeah, it was, it was in between. before. Yeah, those two movies is both 79. And then 80, um, what was he doing in 1980? Uh, but we know 81, he had the fun house and he had this one that he got fired on. And then Poltergeist is 82. He's got a bizarre career. Like Hooper is the director. I love Toby Hooper. And I see those movies that people contest it. I see him in Poltergeist. So I always just say it, it's a Hooper movie because it's on the thing. You know, I don't want to, you know, so whatever. But I do all the produced Spielberg movies. You know, if Spielberg produced it, it looks like a Spielberg, you know what I mean? He's just such a heavy yeah. hand in his productions. Uh, I was going to say, no, Spielberg definitely has a um, a particular aesthetic that he that he favors. Um, I find personally, I, I look at the Gremlins films and I see Joe Dante. Uh, I see Joe Dante subverting the Spielberg 
thing and doing very interesting things with it. In the case of Poltergeist, yeah, I see Hooper in parts of it. I see Spielberg in, in bigger parts of it. Um, so I think ultimately it's it's one of those things. I think you know Hooper deserves credit for part of the film, but I suspect that if he had been left alone, he would have made a very different film. Yeah, I mean, I, I, what do you think the most Toby Hooper, Toby Hooper movie is? Texas Chainsaw 1 and 2? Yeah. They're completely batshit crazy, too. Well, they're his. I mean, and Eaten Alive is, too. I mean, Eaten Alive yeah. is compromised by the fact, again, he's he's removed from the film uh, late in the day. But the bulk of it is his. And, uh, you know, the, nobody did hysterical better than Toby Hooper. I mean, that was the yeah. thing about him. Everybody had their kind of style. And, uh, you know, Carpenter has that sort of old school uh, widescreen aesthetic. Uh, George Romero is very much the humor and the social commentary. And Hooper is just the hysteria that he does so extraordinarily well. Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, of course, is perfect. Uh, Texas Chainsaw 2 is brilliant, too. Those two films, you know, are, are pretty much the height uh, for him. And I would say after Texas Chainsaw 2, nothing he did uh, for in, in terms of a feature measures up. Something happened. Uh, something broke after that, and he just never was quite able to get it together. Did some decent TV work. Did a really good episode of The Equalizer, for example, with... Um, uh, Michael Rooker, which uh, I would recommend a really good series from the 80s with Edward Woodward, uh, which, of course, is very popular now because of uh, the Denzel Washington and Queen Latifah remakes. Yeah. But the original series uh, is is one of my great favorites. And he did a very good episode. Uh, Toby Hooper did. But um, features after that, it just nothing quite worked. The Mangler is OK. Um, Toolbox Murders is OK, but none of them quite really hang together for me. Spontaneous combustion is it's one of his worst. I don't understand. I've never liked that film. I just and then his his masters of horror, the dance of the the dead. That's one of the I'm not trying to beg on the guy because I'm a big fan, but that's one of the worst episodes of Masters of Horror. It's not a question of bad mouthing. I mean, it's you know, it's it's it does people a disservice to act like everything. You you know, you can't praise everything all the time. And there's this unfortunate tendency people have sometimes of you know acting like you have to give up your fan club card. If you say you don't like a film by a certain director, it's it's OK. I mean, it doesn't mean it's a fact. It just means that it's a fact that it's my opinion that this is no good. But other than that, everybody's free to make up their own mind. But I don't think it's unfair. I think what Hooper did between 69 with Eggshells through 86 with Texas Chainsaw 2 is pretty extraordinary. After that, you know, it is what it is. I suspect, again, the, the, the stories about the drug addiction and everything and probably lasting damage that were done to him probably contributed to that. But there are other factors as well. Production, I mean, something like Toolbox Murders, for example, is a very strange disjointed film because it was never finished. Um, it, it's sort of stitched together with scotch tape and it doesn't really quite add up. But the hysteria is there and that's what works for that. His Masters of Horror episodes, no, I did not think were very good at all. Yeah, I mean, like, if you look, it's so strange. Obviously, there's nothing of Hooper in this movie as they reshot all the footage. But, like, if you compare this to, like, Funhouse from the same year, it's like apples and oranges. Nothing alike. Not even close. No. I mean, it would have been a very different film. And who knows if it would have been any good or not. It's hard to say. I, I like the way the film is. Um, you know, it, it has a really slick professional look to it. It has a great cinematographer on it, Gilbert Taylor who shot Dr. Strangelove for Stanley Kubrick. He shot uh, Cul-de-Sac and Repulsion and Macbeth for Polanski. 
He shot the original Star Wars. I mean, this is a great cinematographer. Um, and uh, Pierce Haggard, uh, lest we forget, he started off as a director for features with Blood on Satan's Claw, which is one of the standout British horror films of the 70s and one of the real kind of cornerstones of the so-called folk horror movement. Yeah, uh, from Trinity, from, right? Yeah, well, Witchfinder General and uh, Wick, uh, Wicker Man. So it's definitely one of that, uh, you know, tentpole films in that particular movement. Um, and in this case, he's, you know, as he said in the commentary, which is a great commentary, by the way, uh, I do commentaries for films and I don't mind admitting that if I ever got a chance to do this one, I would love to, but I couldn't do any better than what he did because his stories are terrific. Um, it was not a particularly happy experience for him, but he also around that same time had been involved in another very unhappy film called the fiendish plot of Fu Manchu, uh, which is Peter Sellers last film. 1980, right? Yeah. And Haggard is credited as a director on the film, but he didn't really direct a ton of it. Um, I think it started off with another director and then Haggard came on and then Peter Sellers ended up directing a lot of it himself as Sellers had a lot of problems too. So between working with um, Klaus Kinski and Peter Sellers, he may have found himself questioning his life choices in the early eighties. <laughs> uh, I mean, the cast in this movie alone is just full of cult actors. You start, I mean, Nicole Williamson from stuff like uh, return to Oz and of course, exorcist three and a, a bunch of stage work. And then you have Susan George from dirty, Mary, crazy Larry and straw dogs. And so, so you're just kind of like, and obviously the two big names in here are, of course, Oliver Reed and Klaus Kinski, which are infamous for just being completely insane. But uh, Kinski insane, I would say Oliver Reed just kind of a bull, right, as they explain him. Yeah, there were different temperaments, and that was painfully apparent when they made the film. Uh, even Haggard said, you know, he said, Reed liked to test you in the beginning, and he could be, he was very much a macho man. He like sort of throws weight around a little bit. He could come off as a bit of a bully, but he said he discovered he was actually a very funny man. He was very warm. Um, he liked playing jokes. He liked kidding around. And, uh, you know, obviously the man loved to drink. That's what killed him in the end. Unfortunately, he died very young. Kinski, on the other hand, was legitimately mentally ill. I'm not saying that to be unkind. Uh, he was, uh, at one point in the 1950s, he had... Uh, he had attempted suicide and he was uh, spent some time in a mental institution where he was diagnosed as a schizophrenic. Um, so there's no question he had serious, serious problems. Um, I think he got worse in the 80s. And, and this this is just a theory on my part. But based on what other people have said, I believe it to be true. Uh, the 1980s, uh, other substances started to become much more common uh, in the in the film industry, you know, kind of got away from just the booze and started getting into uh, the old nose candy terrain. And I, I suspect there was something of that that was going on with him as well to make things worse. Uh, and also he went from being, you know, he he became a star in Germany, but then he became a star internationally. And that really fueled his ego. And I think the combination of those things was quite deadly and made him very, very difficult in the 60s, the 70s, uh, you know, in general, he kind of knew his place when he was making small films. He really wasn't that bad to deal with. There were a lot of directors who worked with him during that time, like Jess Franco, Antonio Margariti, uh, John Moxie, Freddie Francis, who said, I had no problems with him. He was fine. He, he came in. He did what he was supposed to do. No problems at all. He had problems with directors who were dictators and who were bullies. And if they came in and started shouting at him and telling him exactly what they wanted him to do, he'd lose it. And that would be that. 
Um, but the other part of this is that very often in the movies that he did, and this is the reason why actors like him, Christopher Lee, Donald Pleasance, John Carradine, Herbert Lom have such huge filmographies, is that although they're usually playing important parts, they're short parts. So if a movie shoots for three months and you're only involved in it for a week or two, this enables you to make a lot of movies, and that's what those guys did. So Kinski very often was doing films where his presence was only required for a week or two, sometimes even less. Uh, Venom is a movie where he's in the whole film pretty much from beginning to end. So uh, he was very much in the thick of it the whole way through the film with Oliver Reed, and uh, they were oil and water, basically. Uh, Reed uh, didn't like Kinski. Kinski didn't like Reed. Uh, Reed would provoke him by calling him a Nazi. Uh, Kinski would, you know, call him all kinds of unspeakable names. And uh, they had terrible, terrible fights. Uh, but what works for the film, though, is that this tension between these two characters is absolutely correct. You could almost believe it was method acting. It wasn't. It was bad behavior, but uh, ultimately it does work for the film. That that seething hatred comes through, but it works because those characters do hate each other. Yeah, you can definitely tell on screen. And you could just, Oliver Reed's a very intense actor, and so is Klaus Kinski. And when the intensity seems real on top of the intensity in the film, you're just like, uh, the slap heard around the world in that scene. When Klaus Kinski slaps Oliver Reed, I, I thought that scene was so intense. I, I kept it in my opening of the 81 because it's such a, it's, I, well, I, I swear I almost shit a brick. Like even watching that movie before knowing any history, but I saw it a few, I don't remember the first time I saw it at least five or six years ago. And I remember watching that scene and being like, oh no, because I knew who they were, but not that in depth about them. You know what I mean? And I just like that did not look like it was acting. that car I'll blow your head off do you understand can you hear me no it wasn't and um I you know you remind me when did I first see it I probably saw it in the mid 80s and I knew who they both were by that point. Uh, I don't know that I'd seen either of them in much of anything, but I knew who they were because as a kid growing up uh, obsessed with horror films, I'd seen all the pictures of Oliver Reed as the werewolf. I'd seen the pictures of Klaus Kinski as Nosferatu. Um, I may have, I probably had seen Kinski at least in uh, for a few dollars more Yeah. by that time. Uh, Reed, I don't know if I, uh, Reed, I might, the funny thing is in the, in the 80s on the USA Network, um, they used to run a couple of films. It's hard for me to believe that they would run them, but they would run them on Saturday Nightmares. Uh, one was The Brood and one was The Devils. And uh, it's amazing because they were cut to hell, of course. They they cut them to ribbons. But can you imagine those films being shown on TV now? I certainly can't. Certainly not no. The Devils. No. So I, I knew just... who... Yeah, I knew who Reed was. Uh, and I knew who Kinski... And that's why I wanted to see the film. And uh, I've always liked it. I, you know, it's a funny thing. When I saw it again years later, I'd gone years without having seen it because it kind of dropped off the radar for a while. It wasn't on TV anymore. Um, Paramount had put the movie out in theaters, but for whatever reason, I don't know if they let their rights lapse or what, but it was Vestron that put it out on VHS. And I remember catching up with it again on VHS because I became really fixated on Kinski around that time because of his autobiography. I'd read his autobiography, which is largely a work of fiction, but it's an extraordinary book. If you've never read it, I highly recommend it. It's just absolutely fascinating. 
Um, and I thought, well, I need to see this movie again. So I watched it and um, I was surprised by how good it was. I mean, it's a really solid thriller. And I think that uh, the level of cast that's involved in this film elevates it to such an extent that I don't understand why it's not better regarded. I completely agree. Rewatching this, I was like, oh, this is this is great. I love this. And I mean, in a year full of slashers, which I enjoy, um, this is refreshing to watch something like this, to be honest, to break it up. And, and it, it stands above it of being some, something completely different. And it's the only Oliver Reed kind of film, I think, from this year that would even be considered a horror film, only Klaus Kinski one. I mean, the year previous, Reed did um, Dr. Heckle and Mr. Hype. And that is a completely different beast, uh, which is a funny, stupid movie, but it's not for everybody. And I'm trying to think where, where uh, Reed went on to do a slew of kind of crummy horror movies in, in the 80s. Like you said, Spasms, which I enjoy. William Fruit, who did uh, the year before he did What Was the One Funeral Home, which is an all right horror film, kind of forgettable, but decent. So, I mean, like he, he went on to do some really low rent ones at, 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 towards like Severed Ties is the one from the 90s, which isn't for Severed Ties. Great. That was a Fangoria film. Yeah. Uh, he did a Harry Allen Towers version of House of Usher with Donald Pleasance, which was not very good. Um, I mean, you know, Reed was you have to understand for a period of time, Reed was the, the number one box office star in England and he had offers to go to Hollywood. Um, I've never heard it confirmed by by Spielberg, but the story goes that he was approached to do Jaws, um, and he was also approached to do The Sting. And in both cases, he turned it down. And in both cases, Robert Shaw ended up being all the richer for it. Although, you know, talk about destructive personalities. Shaw died young as well, uh, younger even than Reed. Uh, he died, you know, he was only in his 50s. Uh, and the reason he turned them down, he said, was because he felt like he owed it because he was he was very sort of patriotic about England and he felt he owed it to the British film industry to stay uh, and, and continue working there as opposed to going to Hollywood like other people were doing. He wasn't going to vacate and do it that way. So he was doing some international type films like The Three and Four Musketeers, wonderful films directed by Richard Lester. Um, but he was primarily staying located in England at that time. And I think he realized that was a terrible mistake. Um, in the 80s, he's doing a lot of crap for the most part. Unfortunately, his reputation is tarnished. He's known as Hellraiser. He's constantly getting into fights. Uh, he's known for just, you know, being a drunk and going on talk shows and being drunk all the time. And it's it's probably true that in much the same way that Dean Martin was reportedly largely drinking ginger ale when he was doing his drunk routine, Reed was probably playing that up because he, that's what people expected of him. So he would go on notorious talk show appearances. Like he got, I don't know if you've ever seen the interview uh, that he did with David Letterman, where he's just, Letterman was terrified of him. He, he was being completely bizarre and he was a big man. I mean, he was, he was, he was barrel chested. He was a big guy. Um, not somebody you'd want to get angry at you, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, he went on to a, a Johnny Carson show one time and got into it with Shelly Winters and she dropped, dropped yep. a drink over his head. Um, all kinds of notorious stuff going on. Did very little of value in the 80s, but uh, did do a couple of really good films like um, Castaway for Nicholas Rogue, uh, not to be confused with the Tom Hanks movie from years later, but a really good film that he's wonderful in. And he had a nice supporting part for Terry Gilliam and Baron Munchausen. Yeah, um, but it took him a while to kind of rehabilitate his image. And really, uh, 
the big thing that seemed poised to rescue him and, and revitalize his career was Gladiator. And of course, we all know what happened there. How you doing? Well, I'm trying to look like Slim. <laughs> trying to look like Slim. Yeah, I'm going to take that uh, Rambo out of his uh -huh. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> whatever, whatever you want. That's yeah. fine with me. Understand uh, goes boom boom. Understand I've just been outside in the green room. I've seen all these fellas, you know, wrapping them gooks on the head, man. Uh -huh. I'll take that Rambo, go uh -huh. do something real mean to him. Pleasure to meet you, sir. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, that we uh, well, I was a little bit afraid you asked me the sort of things to do as the other guy before. No, me. have you ever balanced anything in your face? No, not this, only this. But I watched you a lot of time. I mean, when I couldn't sleep at night and the you know, cracking in television, there's nothing left anymore. And I push a button, it's always you. Yeah, I know. The <laughs> no, no I, mean, I don't mean it bad. In the bad I mean, I liked it. It was funny. Well, right? That's very nice of you to say. And 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 there, and there. Then I had a little bit pity because I thought it was this guy doing it every night. He'd never get any sleep. Into he's fantastic in that movie. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, he didn't get to do his last scene, which is, which is is very depressing. But I mean, I mean, Oliver Reed is one of my personal favorite actors. On I mean, anybody that loves like film like that. I mean, Oliver Reed's got the presence of. I mean, I think I fell in love with him after I watched The Devils, and he gives his speech. Yeah. He's like, I am a man who's, and he gives that whole speech yeah, yeah. in front of everyone. Chills. He's he's not a great guy, but he somehow. I mean, in the film, he somehow just sucks you in, where you have sympathy for him. Yeah. He's a real person. It was. It's a great performance. One of the best performances. If I had to make a list of ten great performances, that would be on it. We have also letters from women who we did not marry. <laughs> One of which appears to suggest that he committed sexual intercourse under the very roof of the church itself. For the love of Jesus Christ! If you wish to destroy me, then destroy me. Accuse me of exposing political chicanery and the evils of the state, and I will plead guilty. But what man can face arraignments on the idiocy of youth? Old love letters and other pathetic objects stuffed in drawers or in the bottom of cupboards. Things kept for a day when he would need to be reminded. That he was once loved. To continue the evidence, my lords. Uh, without a question. And it's a crime that that film is not readily available on Blu-ray in, in America. That Warner Brothers, for whatever reason, just won't, won't deal with it. I don't know why. There's so many more offensive films that are readily available. I don't understand it, but for whatever reason, that movie is just kind of somebody somewhere doesn't like that movie and is is keeping it back in this country. Um, it's a masterpiece, and he's amazing in it. Uh, all of the films he did with Ken Russell, though, I mean, he's he's at his best in them. And you, you see him in something like Tommy, where I mean, the man couldn't sing, but it's perfect for that character that he's playing in the film. He's wonderful in it and women in love and, and all the other things. He was a great actor, but he was not a stage actor. And I think that was always kind of a stigma against him in England where they were kind of haughty about actors who only did films and Oliver Reed never, never did theater work. So I think there was always a little bit of a, you know, sort of slightly snuffy attitude about him in that sense, but what an amazing screen presence he had. And, uh, I think he's wonderful in Venom. I mean, it, 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 he's over the top, but it's appropriate to the character. He's established right from the beginning as the nervous one of the group. This is a cliche thing. You have the slick together, cool as ice leader. You've got the minion who is, you know, just a bundle of nerves. And then you have your other characters that, you know, all have their little thing. And that's, that's Kinski and Reed. And Reed plays that perfectly, as does Kinski. 
I, I couldn't help but find it kind of humorous because he's like, why can't we have another, you go have a drink. And he goes over there and it's just like, of course he almost <laughs> dies getting a drink. And, and that reminds yeah. me of the hammer movies. What was the hammer one? Was it paranoiac when Paranoic. him and his mom keep going over to that bar? And I was like, is half this movie around this little bar? They're just getting shit faced. I was like, that was just kind of like reminded me of that, that he almost bit it going to the fucking bar. He couldn't resist himself, but that was very fitting. And like, that was a good, good, like kind of shutting down. It like slowed the movie down. We're like, oh, okay. So now we're going, and then of course the snake, I mean, they do that. Kind of like in Dawn of the Dead, the original, like you're like, oh, there's yeah. no zombies. And then the tennis ball rolls over the, the top of the roof and oh, zombies again. So you got to keep you keep your on your toes, as cats, I would yeah. say, Kevin McMillan. I, I've heard people criticize the film, saying that the snake itself is not a frightening enough menace. It's not made scary enough. And I, I don't understand it because I hate snakes. Uh, I know some people love them. They they keep them as pets and they, they hold them and they kiss them. And I'm like. Oh, I can't do it. I, I just can't be bothered. Um, so I, I find them quite frightening. So the idea, the very idea of a snake being loose in a room is terrifying to me. So for me, I'm I'm with that the whole way through. I'm completely sold on that idea. Is it a bit contrived to have everything you know, pile up like that? Yeah, it is in a way, but it works. It's a good thriller mechanism. You know, it's a kidnapping gone wrong. Um, and, and, you know, some of the reviews at the time were really nasty and they would say, oh, these are like the most inept kidnappers in the world. I don't know. I mean, you know, things happen sometimes. I don't think anybody could have anticipated that this little boy was going to get, um, a, a deadly snake. And that in itself was an accident, which is, um, is played quite well. I think, um, if you mentioned the, um, the supporting cast earlier and some of the people who show up. If I remember correctly, I think the lady at the pet shop was one of the uh, women that was on Benny Hill a lot. And the Benny Hill show was a big favorite of mine when I was a kid. Uh, so that's another familiar face that's in the mix. We also have in here um, Sterling Hayden as the grandfather. Uh, this is his last feature film, I believe. And um, uh, for the cinema, anyway. And uh nicole williamson as the police inspector and sarah miles as the uh sort of um, toxicology expert uh this is a very impressive cast uh, and uh, for somebody like toby hooper in particular coming on to onto it i mean he dealt with kind of fading names in eaten alive people like mel ferrer Stuart whitman carolyn jones they weren't really you know packing them in anymore they, they're kind of in the twilight of their career um, he obviously worked with a legendary actor like James Mason in Salem's Lot, but he'd never dealt with actors like this who were still kind of powerhouse figures at that time. Uh, there were a lot of egos on that set, and I'm sure it was, would have been very, very overwhelming for him at times. I really like Sterling Hayding in this movie because, I mean, like yeah. when you think of him originally, when I think of him, you know, I think of, you know, The Godfather or Dr. Yeah. Strangelove, especially Dr. Strangelove. And he's got that kind of like clean, uptight look. And then when I see him up in, in this movie, I was just like, I forgot he was in this like and i was yeah. like that's sterling hating like he reminds me of like like a couple of years before my dad died just walking around in overalls tinkering around the house with crap and i'm just like this mm -hmm. guy is so realistic in the weirdest way just sitting there like he just felt genuine he felt like a genuine person and he's just he's also just super bizarre his facial expressions they don't on the script page i guess they don't give him that much to do but if you watch his like facial interactions he's giving it all he's got and he's a, he's very memorable there's a bit in the film, and I don't remember who told me this, but they pointed it out to me years ago, and I, I looked and I said, sure enough, it's true. 
if you remember, there's a point in the film when the little boy has an asthma attack and uh, he hears him and he, he rushes up the stairs to, to go help him, picks him up. And, I'm here, boy. I'm here. Come with me. And you could, if you look at his mouth, if you pay attention to his, his lip movements, something happened there. He hurt himself or something. And he is he is mouthing obscenities. <laughs> something happened. And that was pointed out to me a, a while back. I forget by who. I, I'd give him credit if I can remember. But. He said, pay attention to his mouth movements. It was something happened. Uh, he must have had a bad knee or something like that. So he's starting to let go. They just dubbed it in later. So it's actually very effective. Um, he'd been in the 50s in a really good kind of um, heist, not heist, but an assassination plot film gone wrong called uh, Suddenly uh, with Frank Sinatra, which uh, you know has some uh, kind of chilling foreshadowing of the uh, JFK assassination, as a matter of fact. Uh, and, you know, he was at that time, he was every inch the leading man, very clean cut, you know, short hair and everything else. And this is his old man in the sea period. Talked of Jaws before. Sterling Hayden was the original choice to play Quint. Uh, he was the actor that Spielberg wanted. Uh, and and Sterling Hayden said, no, I'd rather go on a boat for real. <laughs> I, I'd rather just go fishing and not not do it uh you know so he was the original that he would have been great too uh that booming voice and that authoritative manner and everything he would have been an extraordinary quint there's no question about that um he's a wonderful actor he was somebody who suffered greatly because in the uh, 1950s huac uh the house on american activities committee he was pressured into giving names um he was one of many people who cracked under pressure because these people were put in a position where if they didn't do it, they would be blacklisted and not allowed to work. And uh, he hated himself for the rest of his life. That uh, was had a big part of the fact why he drank the way that he did. Uh, a lot of self-loathing. There's a fascinating documentary about him, which is pretty much just him being interviewed on his barge. He had this, this boat that he spent all his time on and he would go from sort of port to port and just chill out there and smoke marijuana all the time. That was his thing. Uh, he was big into he was big into the sweet leaf and he used to uh, just go around and, uh, you know, he, he, he that's why he had this very sort of strange, distinctive look after a certain point. Uh, it's called Pharaohs of Chaos. And it's actually it's on the Criterion Blu-ray of um, either the Asphalt Jungle or the Killing. I can't remember which. Uh, and it's just him talking. And uh, what a what a fascinating guy. I mean, just. A wonderful actor, but he really, really had a uh, a bad time of it psychologically after what happened and always underrated himself and his abilities. Didn't think he was a good actor at all. Of course he was. And uh, yeah, I mean, by this stage, he's obviously he's well past his leading man days, but he's he's wonderful in the film. Uh, he brings a great deal of warmth to the character. He's very funny. He's very believable as an old grandpa, and uh, he interacts very well with the child. Who the child is is also quite good. Yeah, the, the kid almost he, he at points in the beginning he he seems like he's from the different movie. He reminds me of Charlie mm -hmm. from Willy Wonka because he's so like Oliver Reed sitting there cursing. Him. He's like, "You're you're a nasty little bugger," and he's running up the stairs and he's like, "I gotta put my snake away." And it's just yeah. it's so silly, but it's it. it you're a cheeky little, little bastard. There it is. Yeah. Um, about Sterling hating, which cracks me up is like, I feel like he's literally just like making his full transformation to John Houston. Like, yeah. <laughs> by that time, yeah. it's just like, but um, no, he's really good in that. And um, there's one movie that I saw with him in it. That was, it's kind of like a high noon kind of deal um, where he's like that Scandinavian uh, heart. He's got a harpoon and it's like a Western. 
I can't remember yeah. the name. Arrow put it out like five or six years ago. It's really a good movie, yeah. and he's he's great in it. Uh, also, I, I mentioned Susan George. She doesn't have that much to do, but like, no. I just think she's a great cult actress, and she's good in this too. And and I like the idea that they they it's again fitting for Olive Reed almost getting killed for a bottle for a drink, and he almost he basically gets killed in this movie for a piece of tail because he does everything from Susan George. He's almost a cock, really. Klaus Kinski, yeah. like, you know what I mean, right? It, it's got yeah. that weird kind of element there. But, I mean, I can't believe a woman would choose Klaus Kinski over Oliver Reed in 1981. But who knows? Well, I, you know, um, Kinski had a weird magnetism. Uh, I've <laughs> known women who find him extraordinarily attractive. Um, I don't understand it myself. But, I mean, he certainly... He certainly got around a good bit. Uh, it, probably not as much as he claimed, but I do know you know the numerous women who say there was something about him. I said, okay, all right, take your word for it. I always thought he was creepy, but a wonderful, wonderful actor. Uh, Susan George, yes, yeah, she doesn't have a ton to do. She's the first to be dispatched. She has a very good death scene. Uh, she plays it very convincingly and very, very well. Um, I mentioned before seeing it for the first time on TV in the eighties, it was on TBS network. And, uh, it's a sign of the times that back in those days, they used to cut things that you wouldn't cut now. I mean, you could show this movie pretty much uncut on TV now. I don't think you would really have to worry about cutting anything out of it. But uh, in the 80s, when I saw it, um, the little seduction scene where, you know, Reed is like, I don't know, I'm getting a bad feeling about this. I think we need to. And she just she unbuttons her blouse and opens it up and see the, the sort of sexy underwear underneath. It was cut. And it was like, what? There's nothing there. I mean, you know, but that was, again, that was the time. And also the death scenes, like the Oliver Reed scene, which I'm sure we'll come back to and talk about his demise. Um, they made it somehow even worse by cutting it. Uh, it's kind of like that scene in Frankenstein where the little girl was drowned when they cut it for years, uh, him tossing her into a lake. It somehow made it worse. It, it it's made it seem suggestive of something really unpleasant. Whereas when you see it, it's like, oh, it was tragic accident. Um so a lot of stuff was cut out of the film and, and including her death scene. A lot of that was cut down as well because it was too intense. Um, yeah. I mean, she's, she's gone within the first, I don't know, 20 minutes or so. So she doesn't really have a ton of, uh, of things to do in the film, but she makes a good impression. Um, she's always delivered, I think a good performance, uh, you know, uh, most famously straw dogs. That's a great performance from her. It's a great film. One of the best films of the seventies, I'd say. But, uh, you know, um, she was somebody who she was a name. She became a name, but perhaps never became quite as big as maybe she should have done um, for whatever reason. But she did a lot of interesting and eclectic films. There are a lot of things she did, like Fright uh, for Peter Collinson, which I'm very fond of. She did a movie for Sergio Kobuchi called Sonny and Jed. That's her and Tomas Milian and Telly Savalas, very interesting Western uh, and uh, and various other movies besides. So, yeah, she's a great uh a great asset to the film for the limited amount of time she has. Yeah. Speaking of the deaths, I, I think they're filmed really well and correctly. They're all really bothersome. Like they're filmed pretty graphic, but pretty straightforward. Uh, maybe besides the Klaus Kinski death, there's a, there's a little bit much, but that's, it's a climax. But when the cop gets shot, that, that seems real. And they take the time to have him crawling towards the radio. Oh, help me. I'm, that, it's just, it's just well done. Well done in that aspect. That doesn't, I mean, it doesn't really glorify it. It seems matter of fact in a way it's, it's, 
I don't know. It, it's well done. Like I said, almost everything about this movie is well done. I don't understand the negativity towards it. Uh, maybe because it's generic, but I don't think it's generic. How many movies do you know where there's a killer snake trapped? And there's a couple generic spots. Of course, the very, very ending with the eggs in the vent. You see that shit in Killer yeah. Crocodile. You see it in Critters. It's just a yeah. Trope of the that that was that was the period. That was the thing. I mean, you you couldn't have a completely happy ending. There was always that little yeah. you know, shadow in the background, uh, the, the, the corpse moving, you know, whatever. Um, but it's, yeah, it, which I'm sure they hoped. And if the movie had been successful, I'm sure there would have been some kind of I don't know venom how. too. I don't know what you would have done with that. It could have had Klaus Kinski's daughter or son coming to avenge their father or something. I'm not sure, but you're kind of leaving the door open for the possibility of that happening. Um, Kinski, by the way, um, should mention that, you know, famously he turned down Raiders of the Lost Ark to do this film. Um, and in his autobiography, he said that uh, he was offered two. Um, he referred to them as moronically shitty scripts at the same time, but the, the, the one paid better. So that's why he did it. And he said he actually and it was unusual for him because he was quite um, scathing in his comments about directors, you know, big time directors who he felt wanted to kind of get him cheap. And, uh, you know, not pay him what he felt he was worth. So he would say rather blistering things about various directors. But he said about Spielberg that he thought he was very good and he'd like to work with him. But this was an opportunity to make more money. So he did it. Well, of course, it's more money because he's in virtually every scene. Yeah. Whereas in Rage of the Lost Ark, I'm assuming he would have played Toth. Uh, that would make sense to me. I guess he could have been Belak. Certainly wouldn't have been Indiana Jones. Um, no. Yeah, he, that would have been interesting, though. Uh I would watch Klaus Kinski's Indiana Jones. Uh, but no, I think he would have been told, which is a good flashy supporting part. Uh, and he would have fit it perfectly. But, uh, you know, it's not a huge role. So this was a better opportunity for him to make uh, make some more money. He's definitely one of the melted Nazis. I don't know which one, but he's going to be one of the ones, right? The, uh, to, yeah, well, the one who gets his hand, you know, the Vendalian, the, the that, that would have been. That would have been uh, the yeah. part. The one with the hat, or though I it's been mm -hmm. it's yeah, yeah. The um the one yeah, who Ronald Lacey so ended up playing the part. He would have been yeah. I think that's what he would have played. I, I think so uh, too. He would have been perfect, which means we could have had a Klaus Kinski action figure. We never got one. Uh we no, never we got uh, a Fitzcarraldo action figure, although I do have this. This is not an action figure per se, but this is oh. uh, Klaus. <laughs> do you have, do you have Klaus? I mean it. It looks perfect, but it's the ugliest damn bust I've ever seen. I mean, <laughs> his Nosferatu, he's a very ugly vampire, but as he should be. We, they should have sold this movie as uh, The Curse of the Werewolf versus Nosferatu. <laughs> versus yeah, Snake. Well, <laughs> you'd, like to, you'd like to think that they could have had stories, swapping stories about playing monsters, but of course that wouldn't have happened because they were just trying to kill each other the whole way through. Reed did say at one point, um, Sarah Miles uh, apparently said to him at one point, why don't you go over there and, and, and take care of him? Because he was a big guy. He was huge. He could have tossed Kinski across the room. There's no question about that. But Reed said, because I'm not a bloody fool. What he meant by that was, if I go and beat him up, he's going to come in here with a gun. And that's exactly probably what would have happened. So, yeah, no, I'm not going to get into that. I'll I'll shake the trailer and call him a Nazi and, and get him all worked up. But that's as far as it's going to go. Yeah, but also the fact is, like, let's say it's a lose-lose for Reed. He beats him up. He gets shot. He beats him up and he wins. Oh, wow. He won. It's Oliver Reed, of course. He beats him up and he loses. He's like, I'll never be able to live with myself again. <laughs> so it's, it's no, 
there's it no was it, it it was not a good uh mix of personalities it, Nicole Williamson was another one who was notoriously volatile, a man who really sabotaged his own career. He was one of England's leading stage actors. Um, he's the one who plays the inspector, uh, Bullock, in the film. And uh, he was a, a big name for a period of time. And uh, he just continuously sabotaged himself, uh, behaving badly, um, you know, and, and ended up doing a lot of kind of mediocre films. Um, he's in Exorcist 3, which is not a mediocre film, but unfortunately he's added into it rather awkwardly yeah. uh, as Father Morning. Um, because what happened with Exorcist 3 is, you know, nobody seemed to understand this until the movie was actually shot. John, John Carpenter had met with Blatty to talk about possibly directing the film, and Carpenter told him there's no ending, you know, there, there's no exorcism. And Blatty said, no, no, no. I'm not going to have an exorcism in this. And he said, no, nah, it's just, it's not going to go well. I'm not, he turned it down. And it was like, nobody, none of the producers realized that this movie doesn't have an ending. Uh, Blatty turns it in. They said, well, it's a good movie, but the ending sucks. we got to do something about this. So they went and they added in this little subplot with Father Morning, who is kind of a uh, disciple of Father Marin. And they added in and they, kind of really ramped up the ending and added in this exorcism, which doesn't work. And it's, it's kind of, a, it's a, not a very good ending either, but it's better than the original ending, which is a non-ending. Um, but the awkward thing about it is they, they don't have him interact with any of the other characters. He's just kind of alone, alone. And then he comes in and then he's, you know, we know what happens. If they would have just added the little scene with him talking maybe to like George C. Scott or something like that, maybe I could have fit in better. But it was really weird the way they did that. So I remember seeing that movie. I was 13 years old when that movie came out. And I remember even then, and I didn't know about the reshoots or anything. I was like, something's off with this. This is weird. Um, so it wasn't surprising when I learned that was the case later on. Uh, but that's Nicole Williamson a decade later, you know, uh, playing that. They whitened his hair for it and everything to make him look older than he really was. Um He's great in Venom, I think. Uh, he's a lot of fun. His little sort of wry asides, uh, you know, to his uh, right-hand man and so forth, uh, you know, is this sort of no-nonsense, uh, sort of legendary negotiator-type figure uh, who's called in to deal with the situation. Um, you know, he's a good counterbalance to the Kinsky and Reed characters. Well, what's weird is, like, I didn't remember he was in this. Like, when if you would have asked me who plays the inspector, I would have like, I don't know, Stanley Baker. I would have just thought yeah. it was somebody like that. And then I was like, oh, shit. And then I was like, it's this guy. And then I was like, I didn't even recognize him. He was one of these actors yeah. that I've seen in a bunch of stuff, and he just looked different completely in this movie. He, his voice mm -hmm. is completely different. He's got, like, a de demanding voice. You would think he sounds like this in every movie, but it's not the case at all. I mean, his voice is bellowing in Return of Oz, Return to Oz, of course, because he's, what, uh, the... Yeah. the the monster thing at the end uh with a dorothy gale or whatever but yeah i mean it, like i said it's an impressive cast and, and like i said how, how do you think it ranks up against the other 1981 movies um i mean i like it a lot i've i you know again we were saying before why is this movie so poorly regarded i couldn't tell you um i think maybe for a period of time it was easy to take casts like that for granted most of these actors are dead now you know like reed is dead now. kinski yeah, uh, Hayden, it was the last big screen film for him. He might have done a TV thing after this. I'm not sure. Williamson's dead. Sarah Miles and Susan George are the um, the main survivors. Um, I mean, you know, it's not on the same tier as something like, oh, I don't know, uh, you know, Lucio Fulci's uh, output during this period. 
Um, but it's almost unfair to compare it because, yeah, Venom's Venom's got enough scares and jumps in it to count as a horror film. It's really more of a suspense film. It's a thriller. It's a bit more Hitchcockian as opposed to something like, I don't know, The Beyond or House by the Cemetery. How can you compare them? Um, you know, or or The Funhouse for that matter. I mean, it's just, it's so different. It's It's a good film for what it is. I think it's a very good film. And it's a movie that I hope more people will check out and go out of their way to look at if they haven't. If you've been put off by bad reviews and hearing that it was a turkey and everything else, I beg to differ. I think there's a lot of underrated stuff from 81 that didn't get the love until recently. Dead and Buried, I think, is an excellent movie. Maybe top five, ten movies of that year. And you hear about the same five or six movies. And A Dark Knight of the Scarecrow is another one that's really good. So, like, you hear the the same movies over and over again. But uh, 81... Is a very a very deep year, and, and Venom is one of those ones that I I don't think it's going to make my top ten because it's just so many movies that I've on top of liking I grew up with, so that's a problem. The Howling, American Werewolf in London, you know, Evil Dead, uh, that's a big deal. Yeah, there's so many heavy hitters, but I do think this is top twenty material for a year that has at least fifty good movies in it. You know? Oh yeah, oh yeah. No, it's a good film. I mean, again, I. No, no, I don't get it. Um, like I was saying before, I might have got sidetracked. I mean, my initial response to it was very positive. And then I didn't see it for a long time. And I'd read all these negative things about it. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, I was easy to please as a kid. It's probably not very good. But then seeing it again, I was like, it's good. I mean, you know, I'm not suggesting it's a masterpiece. Um, you know, maybe, maybe if uh, Pierce Haggard had been able to, you know, reconfigure some things and, uh, have a little more time to prep and everything else. Who knows? But I mean, for what it is, um, it's it's a solid plot. It's got some nice twists and turns to it. Um, lots of good suspense. If you're afraid of snakes like I am, it works very well on that level because the idea of a snake being loose in, the, in my environment is, is terrifying to me personally. Uh, and this cast, I mean, I don't know. This is the only time you're going to see Oliver Reed and Klaus Kinski sharing the frame. Um, add in Sterling Hayden, Nicole Williamson, Sarah Miles, etc. And this is just a joy to watch. Uh, to say nothing of these other wonderful character actors I mentioned who aren't big stars, but who bring a lot to the little parts that they play. So what's not to enjoy? And the score. I mentioned I should mention the score. Michael Kamen did the score, uh, which is not available, unfortunately. I wish somebody would put it out. It's a really nice soundtrack, I think very effective. As a nice sort of sweeping, um, sl- slightly upbeat main title theme, but then some really good suspense music and so forth strewn throughout as well. And it's it's a very good soundtrack. Um, something a little goofy, but how would you compare it to other Killer Snake movies? I mean, there's, there's <laughs> it's got to be top tier. Well, I have never well, saw the Shaw Brothers from '74 Killer Snakes. I've never seen that one. No. Um, well, like I said, it's it's uh, The Godfather compared to Spasms. Um, you know what what other films are? I mean, there was uh, there's Better a very good Anaconda. Hammer film, huh? Better than Anaconda. Well, God, yeah. Well, most films are. Um, <laughs> uh, there's a very good Hammer film called The Reptile, which is oh, yeah, not yeah. quite the same. That's a Were Snake movie, I guess you could say. There was actually a Were Snake movie before called The Snake Girl, I believe it was called, or The Snake That's Woman. That's a Universal uh, by... or Cult of the Cobra. Well, that was Call of the Cobra. That was a universal film. It's Snake Woman or Snake Girl. I can't remember. It was Sidney J. Fury, uh, early 60s British black and white movie, uh, which was terrible, um, <laughs> frankly. But, you know. I, I know there was some Japanese ones, too. Um, Snake Girl yeah. and versus the Silver-Haired yeah. Witch. I think that's a 68. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's those it's up there. I'd say it's an upper tier one. I mean, I, I don't know. I haven't given it extensive thought. I, I'd probably say something like the reptile might be a little better. Um, but uh, ultimately for what it is, uh, you know, it, there's, there's nothing um, deserving of kind of mockery here. Every now and again, there will be a movie that um, I like that. I understand why a lot of people don't like it. Um, I'm, I'm one of the few people that's going to stand up for Dario Argento's version of Phantom of the Opera, for example. I like that film. Most people don't like it. I understand why they don't like it. Um, I would never defend Exorcist II as a good film, but I think it's a fascinating train wreck. But I can understand why people hate it. Um, this one is just one of those ones, kind of like the John Badham Dracula from 79. I've never really understood why people kind of piss on that one, too. I think it's a good film. I think this like one's a good film, too. I've never huh? really heard that. Maybe at the time it came out, but I've, I've only heard positive things in the recent years. I mean, I, I thought it was a very good one. I mean, Donald Pleasant. More recent years, it's, its, stock has, its stock has probably gone up a little bit. But for years, it was regarded as a bit of... People still... I still see people referring to it as Disco Dracula, uh, which <laughs> is not said endearingly. Uh, I like it myself. I mean, one scene, the, the love scene, the Maurice Bender light show like a James Bond title sequence love scene I could do without. But other than that, I like the movie a lot. Um, I don't know. Every now and again, there's something that that comes out that is kind of dismissed. Um, and I don't really understand why. And this is certainly high on that list of movies like that for me. Yeah, I have my own. But mine tend to just be really goofy movies that were not really completed, but still have some charm to them, like Neon Maniacs or the Spookies or something like that, where I, I'm not going to tell you it's good. I'm going to tell you I like it, and I can tell you why, and that's that's where I'll leave it. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's valid. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, uh, well, we mentioned Freakin' before. I mean, something like The Guardian, not a great film by any stretch of the imagination, but as Killer Tree go, movies go, it's not bad. It's pretty good. Uh, I think it's actually pretty stylish and entertaining, so... Uh, you have to look at movies, too, for what they're meant to be. If if something is really not meant to be anything too kind of revolutionary or too, you know, um, ultra serious or whatever, just look at it for what it's meant to be. And if you like it, then that, I, I hate the idea of um, uh, guilty pleasures. I don't believe in it. I think if if you like it, then on some level it's been successful. Yeah, I, I used that term when I was like. 16 to like 20 and then as i get older i'm like i don't really care like if i end up liking some like movie that i'm not supposed to like so be it just enjoy it you know who cares who's to say what you should like or shouldn't like there there are terms i hate that's certainly guilty pleasure is one of them cheesy i hate i hate when people say cheesy it just makes sets my teeth on edge uh <laughs> it's sort of apologetic uh which i don't you know again embrace it like it if you like it then then say so it's again it's not a question of going out and saying oh it's it's a masterpiece this is the rosetta stone to deciphering klaus kinski's career no no it's not but it's good it's good for what it is and that's that's what matters the problem with a lot of the movies like you mentioned the guardian since it's by william Friedkin, it's held up to a higher standard um and the same thing with this movie it has actors like oliver reed and klaus kinski and sterling hating who were in masterpieces and, and yeah. genuine classics so at, at the end of the day people think they're slumming it when they're in a killer snake movie but nowadays if you look at what what's in theaters um and you got all the biggest actors in superhero movies would that be considered oh, yeah. slumming well, it? you know what i'm saying right yeah and sometimes it's how these things are advertised too there's a movie from the 70s we're talking about sort of the nature strikes back movies 
one of my favorite movies of that type is called Frogs. And everybody who's never seen the film laughs about it because of the poster with the frog well, with the hand. Today, today, the swamp, tomorrow, the world. That was the one yeah, I used to rent as a kid a lot. You would think it's about giant frogs. You know, it sets you up for Night of the Lepus or some piece of shit like that. It's not, though. It's actually pretty clever the way that movie is worked out. And, uh, you know, you have an Academy Award winner uh, at the center of that film, Ray Meland, that is crankiest. Uh, yes, this very <laughs> disagreeable Southern patriarch. Uh, and it's 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 not a bad movie. I mean, it's not about giant frogs eating people. So maybe sometimes just give it a shot and see what it's really about before you decide it must be garbage. Well, it was frogs. Is frogs 72? It's been years since I've seen frogs. Yeah, I was 72, um, which funnily enough, I mean, I, I don't know why I remember this, but there's an actor in the film. Uh, I, I think his Sam name Elliott's is Lance Taylor. Huh? Sam Elliott in that one, too. No, Sam Elliott's in it, but I was thinking of an actor that's in the film. I think his name is Lance Taylor Sr. And the reason I remember is because in 1972, he's also in Blackula. So he's in these two movies, both put out by AIP, which Blackula is another film I love with, with zero irony whatsoever. I, I think it's... I think it's wonderful for what it is. I mean, in so many respects, it was kind of a groundbreaking movie. And yeah, it's got its problems. But uh, I love it. I dearly love that film. Um, you know, I've mentioned before about doing commentary work. And uh, oh, boy, that's a movie I'd love to do if the opportunity ever arose. Hopefully, hopefully they uh, I know that uh, what Vinegar uh, Shout Factory put those out. It'd be nice if Vinegar Syndrome or Arrow picked up the, the Blackula movies and put those out on a 4K or something. Those are good movies. I mean. Vastly superior to Blackenstein. <laughs> Black Death is is preferable to Blackenstein. Um, Blackenstein's <laughs> the disease appalling. of the movie. <laughs> uh, well, well, no, that's true. There is a movie I forgot. Basil Rathbone. Yeah, no, that was Black Sleep. Is Black there a movie called the Black Death? Bean. Oh yeah. Well, I don't know. I haven't seen that one, so I can't say. I meant the bad. affliction. <laughs> Uh, Blackenstein's pretty awful. Um, yeah, I'd love to see. I would love to see um, the Blackula films uh, put out on 4K. And uh, yeah, if I were given a crack at one of them, I would be a very happy man. I think they're both, um, they're a lot of fun. But I really, really, really love that first film in particular. Um, it's just, but again, you hear the title, you think, oh God, you know, please. And you, watch it and you realize no it's actually it's good i mean it's of its time of course there are limitations some of the makeups are a bit wonky and all that but if you can get past that it's there's a lot to love i think that would be very fun to do uh top 10 most deceitful titles to a movie like movies that you see the title and you're like oh no i I would put cannibal holocaust on that list because the first time i saw that i was like what in this heavy metal garbage is this title going on and i watched it i was like oh it's actually a cannibal Holocaust is in the movie. There's a cannibal. Duh. I was just like, but same thing with Blackula. I was like, what? And then you watch it and you're like, oh, well, geez, that makes sense. There's just a couple of movies that are just the titles scare you away. Yeah. Titles are, I mean, well, it's, it's the old judging a book by its cover thing. You know, sometimes you got to give it a, a shot. Um, there are, there are good films with unappetizing titles for sure. I mean, it happens. Um, but, uh, in the case of Venom, I think we can agree. That's a good eye catching one word title. Looks good on a poster, looks good on a marquee and, uh, definitely draws people in. Although today it would cause confusion because it connects them with the, uh, the superhero, uh, trend we've been talking about. 
Yeah, two Venom movies, and then you have the one from 2005, which was kind of like a voodoo kind of slasher movie, which is okay. It's not bad. It's very much a product of its time. Um, better better than you would expect for those kind of yeah. slasher movies from 2005. But I, I didn't watch the the Marvel Venom movies. I mean, as a kid, I used to watch the Spider-Man. I, I like comics as a kid, and then I don't know. I just kind of, I don't, I don't want to say grew out of them. I just lost interest, maybe oversaturation over the years. I don't know. I just don't know. I just have no interest in them anymore. There's too many of them. Um, I mean, they have their place. Obviously, they make money. They're going to continue making them as long as they make money. It's like anything else. They've been making James Bond movies for 60 years because they make money. Um, the, the issue is oversaturation to a certain extent. I mean, you have situations like, uh, you know, Scorsese being asked his opinion about them, and he gives an opinion, which is not by any means a really rude or no. awful opinion. And people went nuts over it. So, I mean, it's just, it's so silly how um, how upset people would get over that. I mean, you know, think about who you're talking to. Are you surprised this man doesn't really want to sit around and watch, you know, Masters of the Universe, things like that. It's not his <laughs> thing. Um, so, you know, uh, they have their place and people like them. You know, I don't begrudge them that. I just, they don't appeal to me. So um, I've seen very few of them. Yeah, I mean, so I'm, I'm not even 40 yet and I don't have interest in them. So, I mean, but then again, I've been watching movies since I was four or five years old religiously. So, Well, yeah, I mean, I, I remember being, you know, going bananas over the uh, Tim Burton Batman when it came out in 89. And I grew up on the, on the Christopher Reeve Superman movies. I saw the fourth one whoo, in the theater. That was Ooh. a train wreck. Um, but, you know, I, I like that stuff as a kid, but... I don't know. Growing out of it maybe is not not the best way of putting it. But your tastes change as time goes by, and there's just you know, I, I don't know. Movies that are sometimes a little too heavy on special effects uh, are are not necessarily my cup of tea. Um, except, ironically, perhaps of a certain vintage when it was practical prosthetic effects and things like that, which to me is somehow a little bit more inspiring. Well, I also think there is a, a certain what, whatever you're drawn to at a certain age, you know, because I, I love Master Universe, even though it's just the movie, which is a terrible rip off of Star Wars. And I know it's a terrible Master Universe movie, but I don't care because it's based off a toy line that was made to make money. So I don't give a shit if it's not appropriate to a toy line. It, it's I liked it as a kid and I it grew with it. I don't think it's a good movie. I don't care. But it, it's practical effects. Frank Langella is excellent. So, I mean, I have reasons to love it. Where, where else can you see Frank Langella play Skeletor? <laughs> I don't think anywhere unless he's, uh, he's got a couple movies. With. He's probably, I think he's, I think he's done for now. I think he got a. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, well, he did himself in apparently he, he had been, he had been cautioned <laughs> multiple times, but you know, different people of different generations and he'd been a star and been a sex symbol to be fair. Um, probably, you know, had women throw themselves at him for a long time. He's an old man now and kind of set in his ways and uh, didn't, didn't heed the warning to behave himself and such as life, but uh, still a wonderful actor and did a lot of things that I really enjoy watching. So um, yeah, he's, he's okay in my book on that level. Um, so, so very quickly, uh, just before we get out of here, uh, favorite Oliver Reed performance in any movie. Well, the devils. Absolutely. Um, favorite Klaus Kinski. Um, probably Wojciech, uh, which is the, probably the least known of his films for Herzog. It's a smaller film. It was based on a stage play. It's done mostly in, in static 
shots. Um, but it's a, it's a really powerful film and an extraordinary performance. It's the one where he plays the the bald Nazi, right? Um, he's not a Nazi, but he's he's in the he's in the military and he's he's being driven crazy uh, by thoughts that his wife is being unfaithful and also by his superior officers treating him like garbage. Uh, and he he snaps. Sounds like maybe it was a little bit uh, too much for him, like really him, like looking at the superior it's officers, as the director, right? Hitting too close to home. Well, I mean, he he said it in his autobiography. I mean, he mentioned every now and again he heard so and so died. Good, I want to go piss on his grave. So he <laughs> certainly uh, wasn't one for keeping things bottled in. <laughs> uh, I mean, that Wojciech's good. I, I I've seen that one. He's he's really good on that. Um, oh, it's wonderful. So- yeah, we say all these crazy things about Klaus Kinski, but you know what? The guy worked up until his death. So that tells you his acting. It must have. And also, what was that? Um, what was he on? Was he on Letterman? I remember there was a Letterman interview. <laughs> well, I mentioned Oliver Reed. Uh, his Letterman appearance was a train wreck. If you want to see, amazingly, Kinski comes across like a complete sweetheart in his Letterman interview. He, he's a little odd. You know, he's kind of sitting there licking his lips a lot and all that but he i mean he he comes across very soft-spoken and thoughtful and and uh genteel um whereas you can see other interviews where he was not such a good headspace and he would you know really flip he 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 mentions uh david letterman says well if you were so hard to work with why do they keep hiring in all these movies he says exactly exactly you know he's like they put me in all these movies if i'm such an asshole why am i keep being in put in movies you know because he made money he he brought put asses in seats i guess Oh, no, he was he was a big draw. And uh, he did. He worked. He did a lot of movies. Um, Herzog was the one who really kind of pushed him over the edge to be a, a international star. Uh, the series of films they did, they did five films together and uh, they were enormously successful and got him a lot of praise and recognition and so forth. Um, like I said, he didn't I don't think he really became impossible until the 80s. So I think there are different factors that play into that. But uh no, he worked. He worked steadily, and uh, always. You can tell when Kinski's phoning it in. You can tell when he's not interested. And he's just kind of sleepwalking through a movie. But even when he's sleepwalking through it, you can't keep your eyes off him. He's a fascinating screen presence. Um, if even half the stories about him are true, yeah, he was pretty awful. But you know, ultimately, what matters is the legacy left behind as an artist. And uh, I wrote a book about him called Real Depravities, uh, which is just, you know, sort of celebrating his work as an actor as opposed to getting hung up in all the stories about the craziness and everything else. Because we all heard about that. Um, but, you know, he, he left behind a very imposing body of work. Um, before, before I uh, forget, there was a mention we talked about Oliver Reed going on the, the big talk shows and always like up, like kind of going crazy. There's one time I remember him going to this talk show and he came out and they said, he's like, why aren't you drunk or crazy? And he's like, well, you know, if, why'd you always do that? And he said something along the lines of, if I come out sober like this, it, it's a bigger story than if I come out drunk. So you could tell it was kind of like a, almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, unfortunately, like kind of like Curly, right? Where they expected him to be this big, yeah. drunk, dumb, fat guy or something. And he really wasn't, but he kind of had to play into it and it kind of helps to his downfall. Yeah, there was a certain glamorization of the alcoholism that happened with him that's unfortunate. I mean, alcoholism is a disease. And like anybody who suffered from it, he he suffered. Um, He he fluctuated. There were periods where he tried very hard to stop drinking. Um, He went through periods of sobriety. People who knew him said that when you saw him when he was sober, he was he was soft spoken. He was thoughtful. He was kind. Um, He was a really very intelligent man. He was dyslexic. 
um, and was always very self-conscious about that and had a very hard time learning lines as a result. But he, he talked about it in an interview one time, a sober interview one time about being dyslexic and, you know, how it had scarred him as a child because everybody said, oh, you're just thick, you're just stupid or whatever. And it was, wasn't he was stupid. It was he couldn't read because you know, he had this condition. Um, so when he was sober, he was one way. But when he was drunk, it was something else. He could be violent. Um, and, you know, there was this idea, well, he lived the way that he wanted to live. Yes and no. I mean, I think it's true to a certain extent, but I also do believe you're correct. There was this kind of expectation that this was going to be what it was. And I'm sure he must have been frustrated by that at times that, you know, it, it was like, oh, here comes here comes the, here comes the rummy. You know, he's going to do crazy stuff. And uh, it had to have been a little bit uh, dispiriting for him at different times. I bet. Oh, I mean, he's still one of the greatest actors to ever live. And so I think Klaus Kinski is, is up there as well. So uh, is, there, is there anything you want to plug um, any books or anything coming up? Uh, the most recent book that came out, uh, was, uh, make them die slowly, which is about Umberto Lenzi. Um, we've talked about Lenzi before, in fact, so, uh, I've got some other books coming. Um, but, uh, you know, right now, nothing really particularly to, to plug. There's more commentaries always on the way. I'm going to be recording some this weekend. As a matter of fact, can't really get into the titles right now until they're made available, but, uh, there's some good stuff coming, some exciting titles. And uh, yeah, anybody who enjoys listening to what I have to say, there will be more. I greatly appreciate you coming on here. And if anybody hasn't heard Troy Harwell's commentaries, they're great. Um, he had joined me on 1980 and did some discussions about Eating Alive. And um, what what is the other big one that we did? We did Eating Alive and we did City of the Living Dead as well. Yes. And uh, I think you'll be joining me for a couple more uh, in the future. Yeah, always happy to come back. All right. I appreciate it. Um, take care. Thank you. Get to work. If we get out of here in under three hours, I'll buy you a drink. Might find a drop of whiskey in there, sir.